privilege this morning to introduce our guest speaker, Dr. David Coffin. Dr. Coffin has a PhD from the Westminster uh, Seminary and is a pastor at New Hope PCA in Fairfax. He's a good friend of Jack and of GPC. He's spoken twice at our retreats and he's also advised the session on multiple occasions. He also serves on the PCA Standing Judicial Committee, Commission, Commission, thank you. So with that, it's all yours. It is a delight uh, to be with you all again. I'm especially happy to preach on a Sunday where we get an extra hour's sleep beforehand. <laughs> that was a grand blessing. This morning I want to open God's word and have us consider together Acts chapter 28 verses 1 through 6. This may seem a peculiar passage to you, but I hope to be able to shine some light on it. Here we find the Apostle Paul and some companions on a ship being taken by soldiers from Israel to Rome for trial. On the way, the ship meets with, as Luke puts it, no small tempest. And they were so violently storm-tossed that all hope of being saved had been abandoned. Nevertheless, under the providence of God, they all survived the raging winds and waves. At dawn one day, they found themselves within reach of land. The ship ran aground as they tried to beach it on the shore, and it was broken up by the waves. But all on board made it to shore, and they were saved. They were on an island, and they learned that it was called Malta. A black bird. Now I'm sure some of you, upon hearing the word Malta, are thinking of a black bird. Mystery fans and movie buffs surely will have turned their minds to the great Dashiell Hammett and the character Sam Spade, especially as played by Humphrey Bogart, and his encounter with an artifact from Malta, the Maltese Falcon. What I want us to see this morning is that though murder and mayhem may have been caused through the Maltese falcon, no less mayhem is caused but by what we may properly call the Maltese fallacy. Consider Paul's encounter with the people of this island in verse 1 of 28. After we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and it was cold. When Paul gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds 
and said that he was a god. The Lord grant us his mercy and blessing in the reading of his word. Let us pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would grant us grace, that the light of your word would shine forth in our minds and hearts, that it would kindle a flame within us, and that we would learn to live well by that light. We pray this for the glory of the one who is the light. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the islanders behold a terrible irony. Here a man has just escaped the grip of a mighty storm and the wreckage of a ship, and suddenly only to be fatally poisoned. They reason together and conclude firmly, no doubt this man is a murderer. Murder was considered one of the gravest crimes in the ancient world. Thus they reason, the gods must be in hot pursuit of this fellow. Justice is capitalized in our English text because there's warrant for supposing the islanders had a view, something like the Greek belief in a daughter of Zeus named Justice, who sits beside him and keeps him posted on acts of human injustice. The gods were after Paul, so they conclude. But then Paul simply shakes the snake off. He does not swell up and die. And these Maltese thus think again. They change their minds. Paul must be a god. Anyone who has such prosperous circumstances must be so good as to be virtually a god. Now Luke seems in his presentation of this story to be poking a bit of fun at the Maltese. The shift in their sensibilities from one extreme to another. Friend or foe, woe or weal. The gods in pursuit or visitation of the gods. Luke's emphasis throughout is upon their reasoning. The conclusions they draw from the circumstances before them. And he expects his readers to see that their reasoning is faulty. These folks, to these folks, Paul preached the good news that powerfully overcame their vain misapprehensions. Thus this morning, I want to direct our attention to what I'm going to call the Maltese fallacy. I've always wanted to name a fallacy. Thus, I stake my claim. The fallacy is this, to conclude from the fact that justice sometimes intercedes in this world, that this world must be the place of retribution and reward. To conclude from the fact that justice sometimes intercedes in this world, that this world must be the place of retribution and reward. Now, perhaps some of you are thinking, oh, great, I didn't come to church this morning for a logic lesson. Well, I only ask you to be patient and to consider that the language of John 1.1, that Jesus is the Lagos, the word of God, could be properly translated, Jesus is the reason or the logic of God. In any case, don't get me wrong. This fallacy does not especially belong to the Maltese. This isn't a history lesson. In fact, this fallacy is alive and well today, even among evangelicals. 
Let's think about it together. First of all, to be clear on the term fallacy. A fallacy, it's an argument which the conclu- from which the conclusion does not follow from the premises. Though it looks like it does. It seems persuasive. But strictly, strictly speaking, it's a non sequitur. The conclusion does not follow from the premises. Fallacies are quite ancient. People have been committing them for a long time. That's why most of them have Latin names. Ad populum, for example. They appeal to the people. Why can't I stay out until two in the morning, a teenager urges. All my friends do. It seems to follow to the teenager, but the parents don't see it following at all. Or perhaps ad baculum, the appeal to force. Do this or I will punch you in the nose. It may be persuasive, but it's not an argument. The avoidance of nose punching is not a good ground for believing something to be true. Now, when we think about this fallacy, we have to notice there are certain conditions for the fallacy to even be committed. That is, there are certain things you must believe about the world that are correct to ever even have a problem concerning this fallacy. So to commit the fallacy, you have to get some things right before you can go wrong. And there are three points that are the sound presuppositions that make this fallacy possible. Here they are. First, you must believe that justice is enthroned on high. That is to say that there is an ultimate source of justice in this world and that it is in fact personal. And so the scripture declares again and again, throughout the Psalms we hear this, 89.14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. The Maltese get that right. Justice sits enthroned on high. Second, that there is a moral government to the universe. Justice is enthroned not as uninterested in the world, but rather as actively engaged in the world. So the psalmist teaches us in 103.19, the Lord has established his, established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Or recall Daniel in chapter 4 at verse 17. There we hear that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. The Maltese get that right. Justice sits enthroned on high and thus there is a moral government to the world. Thirdly, you must believe that retribution and reward break into the affairs of this world. The moral governor of this world sometimes brings to bear pains against the wicked and sometimes brings to bear rewards for the virtuous. So we hear the prophet declare on God's behalf concerning the people of Israel in Jeremiah 5.7. How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are not gods. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? 
Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Calvin makes this point about the Maltese believers when he, that Maltese, when he observes that they get some things right. He put it this way. One might say that it sprang from a proper sense of piety. These are called barbarians in our text. But Calvin says it, it, it sprang from a proper sense of piety. For in order to make the world inexcusable, God wished it to be impressed on the minds of all that troubles and adversities, even extraordinary disasters in particular, are examples of his wrath and just vengeance against sin. In other words, the Maltese get it right that what today we call naturalism or philosophical naturalism is utter foolishness. They avoid, in fact, the impiety of naturalism. Now, what do I mean by this term? Naturalism is the view that the world is best accounted for by reference to material principles only. These principles include mass, energy, and other physical and chemical properties accepted by the scientific community. Naturalism holds that spirits, deities, ghosts are not real and that there is no purpose in nature at all. On this view, catastrophes are nothing but the fruit of impersonal forces at work. Calvin can't imagine such a view. He said, impiety has never prevailed to such an extent that, it, that all did not retain this principle, that in order to show that God is the judge of the world, God inflicts conspicuous punishments on the wicked. Calvin can't imagine naturalism flourishing. And that's still true, at least in some parts of the world. But in the modern West, naturalism has gained currency. Things just happen. This is the fundamental interpretive principle. All are in the grip of impersonal forces at work, forces in play without any purpose or meaning. Calvin had strong words for such as this. Here's the way he put it. Those who try to pluck out their hearts of all awareness of God's judgment are detestable monsters since that awareness is innate in all of us and dwells in the minds of even ignorant and savage, savage men. He's so strong on this because naturalism is soul-destroying. We cannot bear meaninglessness. We cannot live in a world without purpose. We cannot live with the logic of such conclusions. I remember when I was at uh, Labrie in Switzerland, Dr. Schaefer used to tell a story. He was on a ship on a river getting passage from one place to another. In the ship's galley, he got in a conversation with a young student. The student was fully uh, embracing the philosophy of naturalism and Dr. Schaefer was talking with him about it. 
And he said, no, it's all just matter in motion. Uh, nothing uh, finally means anything. And Dr. Schaefer said, well, um, if that's true, it doesn't matter what you do. And the young man said, that's right. And Dr. Schaefer went over to a stove in the galley that had a kettle on it for tea, picked it up as it was steaming, walked over to the young man, held it just over his head. And he says, it doesn't matter what you do. And the young fellow broke into tears. You can't live with such a philosophy. And that's because we're not made to live with such a philosophy. Who could believe that in a world generally so given to our good, that the most important thing about our good is lost? There's no God. There's no purpose. Nothing means anything. We cannot endure especially difficult things without supposing that there is some purpose for it. And in fact, though painful, retribution would itself be far better than purposelessness. For retribution brings a kind of health to the soul, at least to some degree. The feeling that justice has been met and conscience is in some degree relieved at least temporarily. It also means that there is one who in fact can be appeased in relationship to the guilt felt. But of course with naturalism no one can be appeased. And the deepest sense of ourselves as guilty is said to be a lie. The soul's incurable agonies are incurable as meaningless. Thus, naturalism is a profound threat to human good. If these this-worldly troubles are signs of retribution, we are taught to think of them mainly as things that just happen, and we cannot learn the critical lessons that are intended by such signs of retribution. The wise man in Proverbs in 13.24 insisted, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but whoever loves him is diligent to discipline him. Again in Proverbs 23.13, Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with the rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. Here is the principle of retributive discipline. It's instruction for our good. Imagine this. The child does wrong. The mother spanks him. She intends it both for punishment, that is a form of retribution, but also for correction to lead him in the right way. What if someone told the child, oh, don't worry about all that. It just happens sometimes. The mother's hand flies back and she hits her children. You just have to learn to live with it. The naturalist teaches us that there is no rot at work in the government of this world and thus makes our forehead as, foreheads as brass with respect to the lessons of providence. This teaching is a threat to any community. If God is dead, everything is permitted. 
The sense, of, the sense of some final accounting and retribution is critical to a sense of uprightness in a fallen world. In the past, you know, law courts required a belief in the afterlife if you were to testify. Because it was thought that apart from a belief in divine retribution, one could not have a proper confidence in testimony in court. That's still true today, for example, in the PCA, with respect to our judicial system. Our rules say all persons of age and intelligence are competent witnesses except such as do not believe in the existence of God and a future state of rewards and punishments. A sense of retribution is essential to the restraint of sin. If there's no retribution, if there's no final accounting, you might get away with your sins. And if the stakes are high enough, it's worth the gamble. And all hell is let loose on the world. A belief in God and his ultimate justice makes, uh, a belief in God and his ultimate justice makes such gambling manifestly futile. So there were some things that the Maltese got right. But in that context, we have then the Maltese fallacy. Where did they go wrong? Remember, here's their error. On the one hand, they see the snake. No doubt he's a murderer. On the other hand, he doesn't die. They say he must be blessed in some way. What they're getting wrong here is thinking that the world is finally the place of retribution and reward. On this basis, they suppose they can judge who is worthy of retribution by the difficulties they experience in this life. Thus the Maltese fallacy, if you suffer, you must be a wrongdoer and God is showing his displeasure. If you prosper, you must be doing well and God is showing his pleasure. Of course, there is a kind of comfort in this. I see someone suffering. I say they must deserve it. I don't think I've done anything terrible. Therefore, nothing terrible will happen to me. John Dick, the great Scottish theologian, summed it up in this way. The conclusion was such as would naturally occur to persons persuaded that a moral government is, existing, is exercised over mankind, but whose views were not corrected and enlarged by scripture. They were right in believing that the God who knows the actions of men will recompense them according to their desert and that he sometimes interposes in a visible matter to punish atrocious crimes now. But they erred in supposing that such interpositions are so regular as to afford certain grounds for interpreting the design of every calamitous event. They did not reflect that this world is not the place of retribution that although there are occasional manifestations of justice, the exercise of it is for the most part delayed, that notorious transgressors sometimes live long and die in peace, and that the lot of good men is often full of affliction and sorrow. The Maltese fallacy. Now, how can this fallacy be corrected? Dick gives us the clue there. Our views need to be enlarged and corrected by the scripture. 
the needed foundation to avoid this fallacy. The Maltese have missed altogether. And that foundation is found in the doctrine of original sin. The point is this. This world, right now, is justly under the curse of God. All men and women of themselves are worthy of God's just retribution. That means that in any event, there are two levels of interpretation necessary. The first level is to interpret it from God's point of view and eternal justice. From that point of view in this world, there is no one who suffers unjustly. The second point of view is from our point of view, horizontally, with respect to temporal justice and relative good and evil. Jesus makes this point precisely in Luke 13. Listen to what he says. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with the sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think these Galileans are worse sinners than all others because they suffered in this way? Do you see the Maltese fallacy at work? Jesus said, No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. You deserve this just as fully as they. Or do you think the 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Jesus' answer is no. But I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Two events. The first, the act of a wicked despot. The second, a natural disaster. Both are put in a transcendent moral framework. There may have been differences of relative good and evil among all who suffered. But Jesus first draws our attention to the fact that God is finally behind both acts and his purpose is in question. Jesus corrects a misapprehension with respect to providence. He says there's no one-to-one correspondence between calamity in this world and the depth of a person's sin. Jesus insists that apart from repentance toward God, all will perish and that all deserve this fate. The whole world is under a death sentence, a judgment that God may bring to pass at any time through any means he is pleased to permit. From the vertical point of view, that is the condition of mankind and its fallenness. And that is the first premise that is necessary to rightly interpret any calamity in this world. God now, however, generally speaking, is withholding his justice. The final consideration of all things has been delayed in mercy, and that for the sake of repentance. This truth, with our first premise, leads us to see, as one writer put it, all calamities, rightly understood, call all persons everywhere to repent towards God 
and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's surely what Peter was getting at in 2 Peter 3, 7 and following. He said, by the same word, the heavens and the earth now exist, as they now exist, are being stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day, and the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. But he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter goes on to say that the day of judgment is going to come, and going to come suddenly, and it's going to bring great destruction. But he concludes again in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent, to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. This is not the world of God's retribution. This is the world of God's patience showing forth his mercy. And yet in this world, God is revealing that there will be a judgment now in signs of judgment to come. God in this life does not bring punishments according to what one deserves, strictly speaking. In order to not talk nonsense, as Calvin warns us, we must see that in this world we only have signs of retribution. And therefore we cannot make a judgment about a person based upon their circumstances alone. We must look beyond that to a person's way of life. Is it accord with the revealed will of God or not? The word must inform us first before we can rightly contemplate the world. If we see a lawbreaker suffer some temporal calamity, we may conclude that God is bringing this trouble as a sign of retribution. As Calvin put it, God is pointing out his judgment as if with a finger. Paul insists on this point. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men in Romans 1. Revealed is the wrath of God. There are some, sadly, who studiously reject this revelation. In Psalm 92 we read, The stupid man cannot know and cannot understand the the great works of the Lord. That though the wicked spout like grass and evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high. The wrath of God is revealed, says Paul, from heaven. Catastrophes are a revelation of God's just wrath, reflecting his curse on the world. That revelation is given for the purpose of enlightening. It's not the final retribution, however. That is yet to come, but it is a sign that such is coming. It is not the retribution itself. The most terrible calamity in this world could not constitute a proper retribution against sin. It is but a sign of it. Consider the murderer, one who has perhaps killed a dozen people. He escapes a terrible storm. 
And having been saved, he's bitten by a poisonous snake and dies. Here's the question. Would that be justice? One man dead by a snake in relation to the 12 he has killed? Is there any sense at all that that would be proper retribution for the 12 lives snuffed out? Of course not. Our most fundamental moral intuitions cry out, absolutely not. It is but a sign of retribution. And the point is, God may have other purposes in these things. You remember Jesus' conversation with his disciples in John chapter 9 at verse 2. Rabbi, they say, who sinned, this man or his parents, because he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not this man that sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. God has a great variety of purposes in the ordering of circumstances in this world. And therefore, believers must be patient and provisional in such judgments. God's pur pur purpose will not be finally made plain until the final judgment. Uh, consider, for example, in fact, in this world, God is always doing a twofold work. Every interpretation must address this twofold element. Calamities come as a sign of retribution to the unrepentant, but those same calamities come as purifying and strengthening to the godly. This perplexed the writer of Ecclesiastes. In 9.2 we read this. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who is not, does not sacrifice. But this need not be perplexing to us. We know that there are some who by God's grace in Christ have already been brought out of the order of retributive signs. They don't experience the wrath of God at all in them. Though they are precisely the same circumstances, they experience them as God's purifying fire. As Paul insists in Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No one in Christ ever experiences God's retributive justice against sin because Christ, in Christ, that justice has been satisfied. Our larger catechism beautifully captures this point in question 77. It's talking about justification. And it's, it says that justification does equally free all believers from the revenging wrath of God and that perfectly in this life they never fall into condemnation they are already enjoying the fact that in Christ there's no condemnation but they have not yet been brought out of this world of curse where they experience the sorrows and pains of the fallen order but for them, those sorrows and pains are being translated into glory. 
for the believers. The same event signifies something else entirely. Those who seem to be sharing in the same punishment in the eyes of men are quite different in the eyes of God, says Calvin. The afflictions of the godly are to prove their faith and to purify their lives. Proverbs 3.11 My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary with his reproof for the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father and a son he delights. The writer of Hebrews picks up this same point in 12.6 For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son that he received. And thus believers are able to see in the catastrophes of this world that it means nothing compared to the great ends God is pursuing in them. So Paul insists in 2 Corinthians 4.17 This slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Thus the Maltese fallacy and its correction in light of the word of God. Let me conclude by pointing us to some beautiful poetry, hymns of the faith that capture not only the truth of this doctrine, but the beauty of it and the passion we ought to have with respect to it. We ought not simply grudgingly acknowledge that this is so, but we ought to see the glory of it. Listen to Margaret Clarkson's words in Father, You Are Sovereign. Oh, Father, you are sovereign, the Lord of human pain, transmuting earthly sorrows to the gold of heavenly gain, all evil overruling as none but conqueror could. Your love pursues its purpose, our soul's eternal good. Oh, Father, you are sovereign. We see you dimly now, but soon before your triumphs, earth's every knee shall bow. With this glad hope before us, our faith springs forth anew. Our sovereign Lord and Savior, we trust and worship you. In the storms of this life, let your soul rest here and here alone. Palmer in his wonderful hymn, Lord, my weak thought in vain would climb, pictures it this way. When doubts deserve my troubled breast and all is dark as night to me, here as on a rock I rest, so it seemeth good to thee. Be this my joy and that evermore. Thou rulest all things according to thy will. Thy sovereign wisdom I adore and calmly, sweetly trust it still. Let us pray together. Our Father, we rejoice in your goodness to us that you have granted us minds whereby we can grasp the truth and we pray that you would help us to use our minds well as our Lord insisted to judge not by appearances but to judge righteous judgment. Protect us from foolishness and fallacy and in particular from this fallacy which is so much the besetting sin 
of those who understand in general the nature of the world aright. Help us to act according to the truth. And in that truth to rejoice, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.